Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Open in your Bibles to John chapter 5, if you would please, and if you happen to be our guest this morning, we are... We are studying through the Gospel of John on these Sunday, on these Sunday mornings. Let me pray again, if you would. Would you pray with me? Lord, help me. You know, my spirit is down this morning, and I don't know why I'm experiencing that, but I pray that you'd lift my spirits. I pray that you would anoint me now to share what, what, what I've been working on all week, what I've been preparing. I pray that you'd help me to share it with confidence and clarity. And, and I pray that by your spirit, you'd use it to encourage us, maybe even to challenge us. And so we're committing this, this next uh, 45 minutes or so to you, asking you to, to do something wonderful in our hearts by your spirit. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Small town attorney called his first witness to the stand in a trial. It was an elderly grandmother. And uh, he said to her, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs, you're a hypocrite, and you think you're a rising star, but you're nothing but a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. Well, the attorney was, I mean, he, this, he was shocked. He didn't know what to do, and so he looked at the defense lawyer. He said, Ms. Williams, do you know the defense lawyer? And she said, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster also. I used to babysit for his parents, and he too has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, bigoted, he has a drinking problem, he can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, I know him. At this point, the judge took out his gavel and hit the desk, and he called for silence, and he asked for the two counselors to come to the bench. And he said in a very quiet voice, though menacing, if either of you ask her if she knows me, you're going to be jailed for contempt. <laughs> the importance of a truthful witness cannot be minimized. And in our passage this morning, John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus is rebuffing and rebuking the religious leadership of his day, accusing them of, accusing, they're accusing him of blasphemy and encouraging people to break the Sabbath. And Jesus is responding to their accusations. And last week he made five um, momentous claims, if you would. Let's review those. He claims to be the Son of God and to do only that which he sees. God the Father doing, verse 17 to verse 20. He claims to be the one who can give eternal life to people in verse 21 and verse 26. He also claims to be the judge of all of mankind, the final judge in verse 22. He claims to be equal with God. Number four, he says that if we don't honor him, then you don't honor God. That's verse 18 and verse 23. And number five, he claims that at the culmination of time, he will raise all men back to life. He will give them back their lives from the dead, some to eternal life and the rest to an eternal destruction. Verse 24 through verse 29. But Jesus isn't finished. He continues, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness to my, of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Now, if you would, in the text that I just read in the couple of verses, Jesus makes a sixth claim, and his sixth claim is that he always does the will of the Father. He seeks to always do the will of the Father. Not his own will, but the will of God. Now, I've said this many times, and it's worth repeating yet again, and that is that Jesus never sinned. He always did the will of the Father. He never disappointed God. He never acted contrary to the will of God, doing his own thing, as in, as in somehow contradiction to what God desired of him. And he makes that claim. And if I could, I would say to all of us today, that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be one who has received the Lord Jesus. Not that we're perfect, but we seek to follow the will of the Father. We seek to follow Jesus' will in following the Father's will. We seek to do what God wants us to do, not what our own will wants us to do. Again, I, I follow that with this. We will never be perfect this side of the resurrection, but we strive to do the will of God in our lives. Now, Jesus makes the statement after making all of these previous statements that we just noted. He says, if my witness, if my testimony is only mine, it's not true. Now, what he means by that is not that he's lying, not that it's false. What he's saying is, if I testify to myself alone, then my testimony is not valid in a court of law. In other words, if I just say these things about myself, he's not saying they're false. They're not, they're not false. They're true, right? Everything Jesus ever said was true. He's saying that I do not reach the muster of what is declared to be a valid testimony because it's just my word. You remember the Old Testament says that we have to have at least two witnesses to validate anything. Our law in our country is built on the law of the word of God. And so in our country, we say a man is innocent unless he's proven guilty. And he's not proven guilty on just somebody's say so. There has to be evidence supporting that. And of course, this has all come to the forefront in our country where, uh, where Kavanaugh, our judge, was uh, accused by someone and there was no evidence. And then you have Mr. Fairfax now being accused and there doesn't seem to be any evidence other than the, the witness's word. Now, that doesn't mean that either one of the men were innocent of what they claimed. It simply means that we're not going to take one person's word over another person's word without some evidence beyond that. And so Jesus is saying that if my witness is alone, it's simply not a valid witness. But my witness is not alone. I have another witness. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to share with us four witnesses to the claims that he made. Four witnesses that validate that he is who he says he is. So let's, let's continue to look at the text and let's see these four witnesses. The first of these is John the baptizer, verse 33 and following. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I received, i.e. from John, excuse me, the, the testimony I received is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
Now, Jesus reminds them that they sent for John. You remember, they sent to John to ask him, are you the Messiah? Back in John chapter 1, verse 19. And you remember, he very clearly says, I am not the Messiah. But he testified to this coming king. And he said, he's here. He's here. That's him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus says here, he says, my testimony that I receive isn't the witness of man. He's not saying that John didn't witness to him. John did witness to him. John did declare that Jesus was the Messiah. But he says, I, in verse 36, he's going to say, I have a greater witness than this. But he still nonetheless appeals to John. Why does he appeal to John? He says, I'm appealing to John. I say these things to you so that you might be saved. In other words, there was a lot of those people who affirmed John's role. They had heard of John's miraculous birth or the fact of what had happened to him, how he came into being. They'd heard about Zacharias being in the holy, holy place and how the angel had spoken. They'd heard all of that, so they believed John's witness. He said, I'm referring you back to John so that maybe you might just believe his witness. But that's not the witness that I have. I have a greater witness. Now notice he says this. He says, um, I'm hoping that you might believe John's witness and be saved. In fact, it's for a while there, you were willing to rejoice in John's witness. So he appeals to them that they might be saved, that they might not be lost in the end. Now he goes on to his second witness. And this is the one he says is greater than John. Verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. Now we have two witnesses to Jesus. Jesus himself, John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. If John is not enough for you, Jesus says, then listen, believe, be compelled by the things that God has enabled me to do. And so often our actions speak so much more even than our words. This is supposedly a true story from a court of law. I, I, I say supposedly, it sounds a little far-fetched to me, but anyway, supposedly it's a true story. And in this story, a man is being accused of biting off the ear of another fellow during a fight. And so the attorney says to the defendant, or uh, the attorney says to the, to the guy who's on trial there, he's given this terrible testimony. He says, I, I saw him bite off his ear. So the defense attorney says to this guy who's on the stand, he said, you saw, you said that you saw the defendant and the plaintiff in a fight. Witness, yes. And then you said that you were concerned for your safety and that because of this concern you sought shelter elsewhere. Yes. You further stated that during the time of seeking shelter you turned your back to the fight at hand. Yes. And then you testified that it was at then that the defendant bit off the plaintiff's ear. Yes. Well, that makes for an interesting question then. If your back was turned to the fight, then you obviously must have had the plaintiff and the, and the defendant out of your field of vision, correct? Yes, correct. Well then... Did you see the defendant bite off the plaintiff's ear? Witness, no. Attorney, smugly. Then how do you know the defendant bit off the ear of the plaintiff if you did not see him do it? Witness, I saw him spit it out. <laughs> Dead silence, no more questions. Jesus' actions, his actions speak more than his words. What they saw him do, he says, is a testimony to the validity of who I am, to my claims that I am God. And I think that Jesus is referring to what had just happened in specific. 
In specific, he had just healed a lame man who'd been by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. But Jesus has been ministering for a year. And surely during that time, he has done all sorts of things like heal the lame, uh, heal the blind, heal the deaf. He's, uh, he's given uh, walking abilities to paralytics. He's cast out demons. He would even raise the dead. But it's amazing, isn't it, that despite all of these things, people still would not believe. And, uh, and indeed, that is how it is with miracles, and that's how it is with the miracles with Jesus anyway, and he's going to tell us about that in just a second, why that is so, why the miracles did not convince them, but nonetheless, the miracles were signs that testified to who Jesus was. The third witness that Jesus speaks of, so remember, he's not just giving one, he's giving a multitude of witnesses to who he is. The first one is himself, the second is John, the third are the works that he does, third, uh, the fourth would be he witnesses, the witness of the creator himself in verse 37, verse 38, he's not counting his own witness. Verse 37, and the father who sent me, he has testified to me, and, and, and you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Now, many say that Jesus is pointing back to just uh, a short while ago, when he was, a year ago, when he was baptized by John. And you remember that in the account, the father speaks from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son, and the Holy Spirit descends on John in the form of a dove. So some people believe, and I think they're probably right, that he has this in mind when he says, you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. He's saying, you weren't there, you didn't see that, but the Father has witness to me. But others have suggested, and I think, I think they're probably right as well. Ray Stedman will be one of them. And Ray suggests that the witness that Jesus is talking about is the inner witness of God's Spirit in their lives, and they are simply not listening. They're not hearing His voice, though God is testifying to them. They are suppressing the truth of God that's in their hearts. Verse 18, for the wrath of God, this is verse 18 from Romans chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident in them. Here's what, here's what God says in, through Paul in Romans. He says, God is always testifying within our hearts of his existence and who he is. And yet we are suppressing it. People suppress that. They harden their hearts to it. Not all people suppress it. I think some people listen to it. But, but many suppress it. I think Jesus is saying to them, you, you don't hear the voice of God because you are suppressing that voice of God that's telling you even now that I am who I say I am. Years ago, I remember... I remember speaking to a fellow one evening in, in his home. It was just me and him and telling him about Jesus. And, and the whole evening long, I stayed probably longer than I should have, but he was engaged with me and he was arguing with me and he was pushing back on everything I said. And then shortly later, he comes forward and makes a profession of faith. And I asked him about, well, what about that night, which wasn't even too long ago, and how you're pushing back and arguing and disagreeing. He said... After you left, I could not get away from the inner conviction that the story of Jesus is true. You see, God, God is testifying to himself that Jesus is his son. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, you remember C.S. Lewis, the great apologist from, from England of a, of a generation ago? He talks about how the night he was converted, quote, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England was I. 
His mind was still trying to find an escape as his heart and will were being captured by the witness of God the Father. Can I say some of you, and I don't know if it's true or not, some of you may be apathetic to the word of God in your heart, but some of you may be fighting it. You're fighting what you know God says in your heart, and that is that Jesus is Lord. And can I say this to you? You harden your heart to your own peril. You harden your heart to your own destruction. Because if if you harden your heart enough, there comes a time when God hardens your heart. Notice what, notice what Jesus said that you, says to these guys that, are, you know, that, are, that he's talking to. He says, you have not been willing to believe, so now the word of God is no longer in you. I think he's talking about there, you harden your heart to the, to the evidence, to the witness that Jesus is Lord, and you harden your heart to that inner witness of the Father and the Creator Himself, then, then there comes a point where, where God removes the inner witness and you have no consciousness. You, you are hardened in your unbelief. I know several people like that. And I think there's no hope for them of eternal life and resurrection. I think there's no hope for them unless God chooses to reverse course. Unless God chooses to not harden their heart and, and give them yet another opportunity to repent and believe by, by showing himself to them rather than hardening them. And the final witness in the text that Jesus points out is God's word, the Bible. Verse 39 to the end of the chapter. Let's, I'm going to kind of break this text up, talk about it. Verse 39, you search the scriptures. Jesus is talking to these men who are biblical men, Old Testament men. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What a paradox. Here are men who are devoting their lives painstakingly to be students of the Old Testament Scripture. I mean, they are seeking to memorize large portions of the Old Testament, and yet they're missing it. They think in knowing the Old Testament they're going to have life, but they're missing the main message of the Old Testament, which is pointing them to Jesus. Or maybe I should say pointing them in one direction to Jesus. Then Jesus says this, he says, the scriptures point to me. The scriptures bear witness to me. He's saying the Old Testament, I am the main subject of what is written there. And you're reading it, but you're missing it. Remember, for those of you that may not know this, the Old Testament is the record of God choosing one man and and him saying to him, I'm going to create from you this one nation. It's going to be a special nation for me. I'm going to create this nation, and I'm going to use that nation as a witness to all the world. You're going to be that nation. And out of this nation that I'm going to create, that's going to come from you, and that man's name was Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through this, through this nation that I'm going to create from you. You guys are going to be a peculiar people. You're going to be different than all the rest of the nations because you're going to have this, uh, this relationship with God that's different than everyone else. And then he gave them all kinds of things to do and the things that he called them to do for instance the sacrificial system in the old testament and the priesthood and all all of those things were pointing to Jesus and so Jesus says when you read your old testament guys can't you see it all of these things were pointing to me all these things were trying to tell you about my coming and my being here 
Now, if I were to tell you this morning, I'd like to announce something today. I'd like to announce to you that I've been reading the Old Testament and I have found that everything in the Old Testament is talking about Jimmy Acre. Everything in the Old Testament is about me. You read it so that you'll see that it points to me. Well, if, if I said that, first of all, I'm not saying that. Don't anybody get confused. I'm not saying that. But if I were to say something like that, chances are you would remove me from this post, right? I, I probably wouldn't get to, to be a, a, a teacher of God's word anymore because you know it's not true. Mohammed, who creates a whole other religious system, never claimed that the old, you know, even though he's really big on the Old Testament, he never claimed it pointed to him. Gandhi, Buddha, no one ever claimed that, they, that it pointed to them. Had they done so, it would have been pretty ludicrous. But Jesus claims that the old, in front of everyone, he claims that the Old Testament is pointing to him. A claim that I think is, is thoroughly substantiated by reading your Old Testament and reading it with those kind of eyes. You see it to be really, really clear. Theologian Godet comments on this. He says, we see from this passage how Jesus beheld himself in the mirror of the Old Testament. There he recognized his own figure so clearly that he thought it impossible to study the book sincerely and not come to him immediately. Jesus was so convinced, and so rightly so, that he was pictured for us in the Old Testament. He was convinced that if people would just read it to truly understand it, they would see the picture of him. Now maybe the picture is clearer for us, as clear for us maybe as it was for him. But let me give you some pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. For instance, in Genesis, you remember the story of Isaac and the, and the sacrifice of Isaac? And they're going up on the mountain. Abraham's going to take his son Isaac to sacrifice him because God's told him to do that. And when Isaac says, where's the sacrifice, father? And, and Abraham says, God will provide. All along, knowing he's taking him up there because God's called for, for his son Isaac. When they get up there and God test Abraham. Abraham does not, God does not let him go through with it. They find a ram in the thicket and the ram is the substitute for Isaac. And New Testament scholars and uh, New Testament writers and all, we all see that in Genesis, Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket. He, he's the substitute sacrifice. I mean, I could go almost through every book. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. Remember Jesus says, you remember the Passover, how, how the, you sacrificed the lamb and the death angel passed over everybody and so your firstborn didn't die? I'm, I'm that same Passover lamb. See, so Jesus is the Passover lamb of Exodus. He's the high priest in Leviticus. In, in the book of Ruth, there's a story there about Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, redeeming his loved one. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. In Job, he's the redeemer. Remember Job says, I know that my redeemer, I know the guy who's going to rescue me lives. And sure enough, Jesus is that redeemer. In the Psalms, he's like the good shepherd. In the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Jesus is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he's our bridegroom. In Isaiah, which is one of my favorite, he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. How can you read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus? In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings that rescues us from, from God's judgment. So it's impossible to read your Bible and not see, at least I think it's impossible not to see Jesus. And Jesus thought it was impossible not to see him. We look, at, uh, we look at the people today, the, say, say Orthodox Jews, 
How do, they, how do they read their Old Testament and not see Jesus in, the, in their own text? Well, I think verse 40 gives us the answer to that. Back in verse 40, Jesus says, And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I want to suggest to everyone that the, the issue here is not having enough evidence. The issue is not being willing and if you are not willing to do something, then no amount of evidence is going to convince you. Bob Deffenbaugh, who is a pastor, tells of teaching uh, evolution. Excuse me, teaching a uh, history class in uh, in prison for some prisoners and for high school. And one one gentleman came to him, and Bob said he'll never forget this. He said, "I'll tell you why I believe in evolution. I believe in evolution because I won't." believe in God. I think the reason why they would not believe in Jesus is because they would not believe in Jesus. They would choose not to believe in Jesus. Why would they choose not to believe in Jesus? Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? I think Jesus puts his finger on it here. He says the reason they won't believe is because they, they want the praise of men. They, they want the glory of other people, not God's praise. They want the praise of others. And can I say, we struggle with that today. All of us do. Maybe, maybe that's a generalization, but most all of us do. We, we struggle with wanting fame and recognition and prestige, wanting to be treated with respect and reverence. They love the praise of men, and because they love the praise of men, they would not believe in Jesus. That's what he says. They would not believe in me because they want that. If you want the acceptance of men, I think you're never going to come to Jesus. You're never going to believe in Jesus if what you really want at the end of the day is the praise of men. Because when, when you come to Jesus, you have to be willing to recognize who you are. You have to be willing to recognize your, your state before God. That you have nothing that merits God's forgiveness or merits God's gift of eternal life. You don't have anything like that. The false teacher comes along and he flatters you, diminishing sin, demeaning grace, and, his, and people love his message. Paul tells Timothy, in, in the last days, whenever the last days would be, he said, listen, men will come because they want their ears tickled. They, they, want, they want to feel good about themselves. Don't you want to feel good? I want to feel good about myself, right? And you know, and, and you know the, the five languages of love? Y'all all know this. One of my love languages is words of affirmation. I, I, when my kids tell me positive things about me, it means the world to me. <laughs> so, uh, so we're, but, but it's not just me. Words of affirmation make us all feel good, I think. right? So we like to be affirmed. The question is, at the end of the day, who do you want to ultimately affirm you? Do you want it to be the Lord Jesus? Do you want to have God say, well done, Jimmy? Or do you want people to say, well done, because you're compromising on this end, so you get it now? Some of you might be thinking, people would say, and I've heard this before as a young Christian, I used to hear it, man, you, you, it's just pie in the sky. You're about the future. You're, about, you're putting it off for tomorrow. Yeah, well, I am. And uh, I make no bones about that. 
I believe in eternal life. I believe that this is not all there is. I believe there's a God who loves me. I believe there's a God who's going to raise me from the dead. I believe there's a God who's going to establish a kingdom on earth with men and women that he has saved and, and in which all of the utopia that we long for will be found, just like Jesus promised. It's amazing how people will follow so many others who promise them so much, but not Jesus. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how do you believe my words? Now, I want to suggest that, um, that Jesus is really introducing sort of a radical principle here. We, used to th- we think that if I guess give people more light, more pe- they'll believe, right? In other words, if people don't believe, it's just they don't have enough knowledge. And if I just give them a little bit more knowledge, they'll believe. Jesus seems to say that it is not more knowledge that'll cause people to believe. He said, if you won't believe Moses, why would you believe anyone else? If you don't believe what Moses said about me, why would you believe what I say about me? He seems to say that if you're not responding to the light that you have, that's pretty radical, then then instead of getting more light, you know, you're you're not going to get more light. I, um, I listened this week to, uh, it put, showed up on one of my feeds, and I, and I listened to an interview with um, John MacArthur, and help me out, Ethan. Ben yeah, Ben Shapiro, thank you. That was a mental block there. Ben Shapiro and John MacArthur. And, uh, boy, I, I, I love both men. Uh, ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. And at some point, he's asking John MacArthur about the difference between their, his Orthodox Judaism and our biblical Christianity. And he's asking, what's the difference? Because we both, you know, you derive your biblical morality from the Old Testament. The New Testament is just, you know, extrapolating the, the morality of the Old Testament and putting it in the New Testament. What's the difference? What's the big difference between us? And John MacArthur did a wonderful job of of just sharing with Ben in in such a gracious way that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God had promised, you know, Moses. And this, this text had been working in my mind, working in my mind. And so as I'm listening, and I'm listening to Ben, who is this Orthodox Jew, believing the Old Testament, believing in Jehovah, and, and yet thinking... And he knew a lot about Jesus, but he was not willing to believe what Moses and Isaiah and so many others said about Jesus. John MacArthur brings in Isaiah 53. He walks Ben Shapiro through Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. If we do not respond to the truth that we have, then then I'm not sure there's hope for us that God will give us more. I mean, it'll be a grace or a mercy from him if we don't respond to what he's doing. So today we have the testimony of John and we have the miracles and we have the word of the Father, but they're all combined in the last witness that Jesus says, the scriptures, because we have both the Old and the New Testament who testified to everything that Jesus said was going to witness to him. So if you're here this morning and you have not 
responded to the witness of Scripture, which tells us, and by the way, the, the Bible is not a magical book. The Bible is a record of men's personal stories of dealing with the New Testament, especially, is a record of men's dealings with Jesus. These are his stories, but it is the Word of God, and it is a witness to you and me. But before I close this morning, I'd like to just uh, share with you, there's one more witness to our generation that Jesus does not mention. And if I could be so bold, I, I'm going to add to Jesus' witnesses to himself. And I'm going to say to you that in our generation, that last witness is you and me. The last witness to Jesus is you and I. Jesus said to us, he said, go into all the world and you shall be my witnesses. That, that's his last mandate. You're to witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the age. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm going to be with you always, even to the ends of the age. So the last witness, that if we could add another witness to this list that Jesus gives us, it would be you and me. We're to be witnesses to Jesus. We're to be witnesses to what he's done in our life. We're to be witnesses to the veracity of Scripture. We're to be witnesses to everything we know to be true. And I realize some of that's subjective. Jesus' work in my life is subjective, but it's built on an objective reality of Jesus rising from the dead. And so I can share both the objective side of my faith and the subjective side of my faith. But I'm that witness to the Lord Jesus. Now, as I conclude this morning, I'd like to, if you'll just give me your attention for a few more minutes. I'd like to share with you how we witness, and I'd like to give you two, two aspects to our witness. And the first one is this. We witness to the person of Jesus by how we live our lives, by what we do with our lives. We point to Jesus with our lives. And I have a true story. Dr. Record from the North American Mission Board told this story, and uh, it's, so it's... Uh, from his vantage point, but it's not about him, it's about a fellow pastor. And I'd like to read it to you, it's not too long. A pastor friend in Texas was in a hurry after work. He had to get to the mall for some items, go to his daughter's school to pick her up, take her home, get to the deacon's meeting, and then to spend the evening in, the, in counseling sessions, so he had a busy evening ahead. Once in the mall, he saw an advertisement for a music store win, in a music store window that said two CDs for $9.99. He loved music, so he decided to go in and take advantage of it, and he picked up two CDs that he'd really been wanting to get. Went to the register to pay for them. He threw down the money while talking to everyone around him. Then he picked up his bag, his change, and went out of the mall. When he threw the bag in the front seat of his car, he noticed for the first time that the clerk had not charged him $9.99, but only $1.99 for the two CDs. His first thought was he didn't have to go back. That was their fault and get it fixed. But a small voice inside him said, you don't have time not to go back. So he went back in, stood in the same line until he came, came to, his, to the clerk. He said, look, I'm in a hurry. You've made a mistake. The sign says $9.99. Charge me $1.99. Please make this correct. And she said, sir, I didn't make a mistake. And he said, sure you did. There's the sign. Here's the receipt. Please make the correction. No, sir, I didn't make a mistake. What do you mean? Can I tell you the rest of the story? Will you let me finish? He said, yes, I will. She said, for 17 years, I've been out of church. Recently, my life has been falling apart, and I needed to get back into church. I looked around in the, for the one that was closest to me, and I found 
the, church, the name of the church, and I went there Sunday and slipped in the back, and I listened, and the pastor that day was speaking on integrity. Sir, it happened to be your church, and when I saw you in my line, I wondered if this was something you preached on Sunday or lived on Monday, and I determined to find out. And then she said, Sir, I don't even know the right questions to ask, but I know that whatever you've got, I need. And then she began to cry. And the manager, who was a believer, let her go from the register, and the pastor had the opportunity to lead her to the Lord. Do you see how that man's life witnessed to the reality of Jesus? And I hate that that illustration was about a pastor, because I know people tend to make pastors different. But like I told the new members class today, I am no more a minister than you are. We are all ministers for God. And your life testifies to this reality you claim if you claim it. And you need to be a witness with your, with your life. One more story. Ravi Zacharias tells this story in one of... Uh, uh, I think one of his things, but it's a, it's, a, it's a story from Marie Chapin's book on Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. But I'll try to tell the story, just read the last part. But this is when the Yugoslavia was really run by a state church, and the state church, in the name of Jesus, brutalized and killed believers and non-believers alike. The church was extremely corrupt. And one day, this evangelist by the name of Jacob, he went into a certain village and he met a fellow by the name of Zimmerman, and he told him about Jesus. And Zimmerman, Zimmerman shut him up, and he said concerning the church, right? He said, my nephew was killed by them. He said, uh, they, were, they wear their elaborate coats and caps and crosses, he said, signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. And so, so Jacob, he, uh, he looked with Zimmerman trying to talk to him, and and he's asked Zimmerman this question. He says, Zimmerman, suppose I, I steal your coat and I put it on and I break into a bank and suppose further police cite me running at a distance, but they can't catch me. But one clue, however, that put me on your, their, they put them on your track was they recognize your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? I would deny it, Zimmerman said. Ah, but they saw your coat, they would say, retorted Jacob. This analogy quite annoyed Zimmerman, who ordered Jacob to leave his home. But, but this brother would keep coming back to Zimmerman time and time again. And finally, one day, Zimmerman said to him, how does one become a Christian? And Jacob taught him the simple steps of repentance towards of sin and trust in the work of Jesus and pointed him to Jesus. And Zimmerman bent down on his knees in the soil, put his head to the ground, and surrendered his life to Christ. And when he rose to his feet, he wiped tears from his eyes, and, and he said to Jacob, Thank you for being in my life. And then he whispered these words, pointing to heaven. He said, You wear his coat well. Here's how you witness to Jesus. You wear his coat well. You put it on and you wear it the way God would want you to wear it. So, so how, does, how, does, how does we witness for Jesus in our lives today in 2019? Well, we live it with our lives. But then the second thing, how do we witness? We have to witness with our words. It's not enough just to wear his coat. It's not enough to have your life exemplify Christ. Now, I don't think your words mean anything if you don't exemplify Christ. So your life has to be foundational. But it's not enough. It's not enough. 
You've got to talk about Jesus with your words. Paul told the Roman church, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear unless someone tells them? So you're to be that witness. You're to be the one who tells them, tells them the story. I, I read uh, this week from uh, the Lifeway. They, they're always quoting, you know, statistics and stuff like that. And, and I can't remember what the number is. I think it's more than half of all millennial Christians believe that it's not just not their responsibility to evangelize, that is to tell people about Jesus, but half of millennials think it's wrong for them to do that. Where in the world, how, how have we gone astray in telling our young 20-somethings followers of Jesus that somehow they're not just responsible, but it's wrong for them to talk about Jesus in our culture. Our culture needs us to talk about Jesus more than ever. Our culture needs us to voice about Jesus more than it ever has before. You've got to speak up, everyone. And you say, well, Jim, I don't know what to say. I know, I told you the other, the other week, I, I don't know what to say either. It's really hard. Shep's death has enabled me to talk about Jesus in a way that's, that I find extremely gratifying because I'm not just giving you certain things to believe. I'm actually telling you about this hope that I have for eternal life. But you have, maybe you haven't lost a son or somebody. You, you can't use my illustration but, but here's what I'd say. How has Jesus changed your life? And use that. Use that as your stepping stone into talking about Jesus. Don't be afraid to talk about him. In our culture where morality is shifting and changing and people are embracing a very different morality than, than the one that the Bible purports, you know, it's, it's, we need to speak up. We need to speak about biblical morality, but we need to do so with love, and we need to do so pointing to Jesus as the one who lives our biblical morality for us because we can't live it on our own. So here's my final concluding request for you this morning. Uh, won't you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and receive him? If you're here this morning and, and you are not a follower of Jesus and you have been like the Pharisees, just unwilling to believe? I don't know what, what more evidence would you need for the objective evidence of the resurrection of Jesus and for the outcome of that action, which is the change of the world. Not by, not by guns, not by knives, not by butchery and murder. What more do you need? So would you put your faith in Jesus today? Some of you need to have put your faith in Jesus. You need to follow that up with, with believer's baptism. And then finally, you know, for, the, for all the rest of us, will, will you and me, will we join this great band of witnesses? I mean, will we join this great band of witnesses that we have that's lived before us? You know, in Hebrews it says, there's this great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And they, they witness to the Lord Jesus. Can, can we, will we, would we join that great band of witnesses? who by their lives and by their words honor Jesus, exalt Jesus, make him known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being willing to come and then, and then ultimately to suffer our death for us. Thank you for being willing to do that. And uh, we, uh, we just want to honor you and bless you. Father, I pray that for anybody listening to my voice this morning who has yet 
to put their faith in you, that today would be the day they'd receive you. By faith, right now, where they sit or when they listen, Lord, would you, would you help them put their faith in you and follow you? And then for all of us, Lord, who already follow you, Father, may we join that great crowd of witnesses. May we, may we just be willing to be vocal with our neighbors and our friends and our work colleagues. Lord, just, just help us to not care more about the praise of men, but care to one day hear, you know, you did a good job. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.